Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the podcast that laughs in the face of politics, only for politics to laugh with it, causing me to say, no, wait, we were definitely laughing at you. This is episode 115, I'm Tien and Duyeb, and this week, as Prime Minister, and what would happen if you swap the fly in the fly with a praying mantis, that's right, Theresa May, as she makes a bid for the centre ground, I get the feeling if she won, it, much like that Banksy painting, would immediately go through the shredder. Yes, in her speech to the Conservative conference last week, the leader of Great Britain danced on stage to ABBA. No, not appropriately to SOS, but instead to Dancing Queen, with all the comfortable ease of someone with two broken legs trying to walk on ice. Before stating that post-Brexit Britain is full of promise, which means nothing when it comes from a party who regularly don't keep theirs. And then May declared that austerity has ended, despite everyone who it affects finding it a lot more like a Peter Jackson film, where they'll no doubt watch it attempt to end for several years with no definite fulfilling payoff. Because that's where politics is right now, full of unsubstantiated statements that no one cares about because, oh, oh, she did a funny jig. It's only a matter of time before journalistic opinion pieces have headlines like, Trump's biggest mistake was forgetting to do the floss while destroying women's rights, or why Viktor Orban needs to combine his racism with some well-timed dabs. Other lowlights from May's speech included suggesting telling people who moan about the NHS how much extra funding the Conservatives are giving to it, as though that will somehow help with reducing anaesthetic costs. And complaining that nationalisation would cost not government money, but your money, forgetting that government money is largely your money because that's how tax works. The day before, the Conservatives revealed their new immigration plan, which seemed a lot like a horror remake of the hostile environment policy directed by James Wan, who then wouldn't be allowed in the country to do press interviews about it. Under this plan, announced by Wired Baked Bean and Home Secretary Sajid Javid, in order to stay in the UK, immigrants will need a high-skilled job with a salary of around £50,000. So now we're just waiting for the policy that will go hand-in-hand with this, right? You know, where the government announced nurses, social workers, care workers and other jobs that are hugely understaffed and largely filled by workers from abroad will now get a massive increase in wages, yeah? Any minute now, right? Any minute now, guys? Guys? 
50 grand is a bizarre number when the average wage in the UK is £27,600 per year. I mean, nothing helps the country's xenophobic rhetoric like letting people come over here, taking all our management positions, leaving us to do the really crappy low-wage stuff that no-one wants to apply to do in the first place. There will also be a new British values test, which sounds like a lot of bollocks, but I'm at least hoping it just involves the candidate looking at a series of things, and if they like any of them without even grumbling a bit, then they fail. Either that or to fit current mood, they'll probably have to look at a series of facts about how much migration actually contributes to the UK rather than degrades, but then completely ignore them in order to insult themselves about being a health tourist before carving a Union Jack into their face and running into a wall 40 times over with the hope that it will somehow become a door at some point. It's still so strange that our government are happy to shout nationalism about how we're the best country in the world, while then being really angry that anyone should want to come here and therefore try their hardest to make things so shit that it just puts everyone off. That immigration policy was one of just a few that were actually mentioned all conference, with another being that heterosexual partners can now legally enter a civil partnership instead of a marriage, which as many know is rarely civil. There's going to be an emergency £240 million given for hospital beds this winter, which is not enough, and slightly countered by the £1.3 billion that are going to be cut from council services, meaning they'll have even less adult and child social care, meaning hospitals will likely be more full in the first place. Conservative policies are so often like one of those sliding puzzles. You know the sliding puzzles where you move a square to fill a gap that's been left by moving another square, while at the same time an obvious massive hole appears elsewhere. Shitbagpuss Boris Johnson gave a speech to a large crowd, presumably either because they heard it was about to rain outside, or maybe they just wanted an expert guide to doing clowning badly. They were, as a result of their poor life choices, subjected to a boring diatribe, mostly about how dangerous Labour leader and low-budget Ian McKellen character Jeremy Corbyn is, with Boris referring to him as a Tony Benn tribute act, which is very rich coming from someone who looks like the winner of a Wurzel Gummidge stuffed with offal competition. And the rest was him slagging off May's Brexit plan by saying it is dangerous and unstable, in yet another example of Boris's inability to shout anything that isn't just a Freudian projection and also a cry for help. And then, of course, to finish the conference, like she just lost at Strictly, made it a dance and tried to persuade people that they should choose the Conservatives because of all the stuff that they say they've done, but they absolutely haven't. This combined with lots about, again, how dangerous useless Labour are or how useless dangerous Labour are and how hard times will be over when we get a good deal from Brexit, which she isn't sure how to do and looks less and less likely to be able to do every single day best sales tactic ever. I mean, she may as well try to sell you a car by saying, well, it isn't a sick horse and it'll go really fast once we work out how to put an engine in it. May reiterated all this in a piece in The Observer on Sunday, despite it being revealed earlier in the week that she no longer reads newspapers herself because it's better for her well-being to ignore them. Yet, she seems to think she can sway the British public by ruining their mental health on a Sunday with her words. Thanks tons, Theresa. As May stated that Conservatives are the only choice for the future, Environment Secretary and face drawn on a ball horn, Michael Gove, announced his big plan for post-Brexit Britain, which is to open waste dumps for business, allowing people to hunt for gold in others' rubbish. Yet another Freudian projection on how people had to sift through a ton of shit at the Tory conference to find a single corn policy. So there you go. As Theresa May said, we have everything we need to succeed. You'll probably just have to fight an angry fox for it before going to A&E for tetanus jabs. Meanwhile, in the other conferences of the week, leader of the SNP and one of the original ESPers in Akira, Nicola Sturgeon, has said that her party would back a second referendum, aka a people's vote, which I know is supportive of Scottish people voting to remain by 62%, but I also can't help but wonder if it just fulfils the gap that's been left by having some sort of election every year since 2014 until this year. 
At the Green Party conference, they said that the work-life balance is in crisis and that instead of the often confusing GDP, a free time index should be used to judge how the UK is doing. A free time index? Putting that together just sounds like an awful lot more work to me. In other news, in the US, haunted Cape Rainfrog Brett Kavanagh has been elected to the Supreme Court. After they were so impressed by him crying hysterically about drinking beer, everyone at his Senate hearing ignored all the evidence that he likely sexually assaulted Christine Blasey Ford in their high school years. Therefore, by appointing him, something that has pleased physical manifestation of trapped wind and President Donald Trump, so you know it's a bad thing, the US have proved that justice is blind, just only when it comes to women's rights. And the IPCC, as in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, not the Independent Office for Police Conduct, or the niche group that really wants you to watch them take a leak, note the first IPCC, they have released a report that says there needs to be rapid and significant changes now with climate change, or we'll all be doomed in about 12 years, which, judging by how the UK government work, means that they'll look at it in about 11 years' time and then argue with each other about what to do, hoping to ask them whether for some sort of transitional phase where maybe the rising sea is just at knee level for two years until we can sort things out. It was very clever of the IPCC to say that this was the final call. If they can find a small bell to ring that with, I reckon the UK will fight each other to get their climate change tackling in before lights go up and everyone's forced to leave. Howdy pod folks, how's you? Yeah, that was a cheery bit on climate change just there, yeah. Despite the years of people demanding that we all get out of our echo chambers, yada yada yada, you know, all the nonsense. You know, I don't know, I don't know why they want us to do that, just so they can, what, burgle them, and we'd come home to an empty quiet chamber as an echo thief runs off with a bag full of them, which you think would be easy to catch, but then I guess they'd always sound miles away. Anyway... Everyone demanded, I'll get out of your echo chamber, and I did spend some time during that sort of time looking at climate change denier stuff. Um, Denier, not denier, like some particularly stupid tights. Um, And I just couldn't fathom it at all. I mean, even if you didn't believe in climate change, why wouldn't you want nicer air or sea anyway? Even if you know you'll make more money churning out horrid smoke from your metal holes, then surely you'd have to stop at some point and think, oh, I'll probably have to live in this and breathe this now, so maybe I should stop. It's so weird. I always see it as like Pascal's wager, where he said you may as well believe in God because if he or she exists then job done and if he or she doesn't then you've lived by a moral code anyway and not lost anything he didn't say he or she, he was French Um, but that's all balls isn't it because I sleep in on Sundays and I haven't killed anyone yet, I mean that's not true actually the sleeping in bit, I mean I have a baby daughter I haven't slept in on any day for six months which to be fair has made me want to kill several people, look there you go I definitely think sleeping rather than religion saves a lot more people, more sleeping, less religion anyway look all I was saying is that like Pascal's wager, you may as well try to avert climate change because if it's happening then hooray you've stopped it and if we haven't all died by melting in a hell firebomb tsunami earthquake sky storm and if it isn't which it definitely definitely is then look how nice it is going to the beach without getting your nads caught in a beer can holder sorry uh, that was meant to be the beginning of the admin bit but that was a bit ranty wasn't it what I meant to say was welcome again to the podcast uh, lovely listeners thank you all for tuning in and boy oh boy what a podcast interview I have for you this week um, but on to that in a minute firstly uh, a quick thank you to Kat for the Kofi donation which this week was used on a cold caffeine full fizzy drink because hey it's still caffeine and this global warming means I'm regularly walking outside thinking well it's October and I'm cold now in the morning before an hour later going why am I slowly melting in the afternoon because the weather is a dick um if you can spare three pounds to buy me a one-off coffee for shouting this into your ears each week then please please do so at ko-fi.com forward slash bro or if you fancy doing a more monthly thing to show your appreciation for these sounds please join the patreon at patreon.com forward slash bro and no if you can't do either of those things uh it is cool i know i 
bang on about this every week, but I can't do either of those things either. Uh, that's why I need you to buy me coffee. That's why I haven't joined my own Patreon. I mean, fuck that. Um, but please, uh, if you can't do those, just review the show on the podcast app of your choice, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, CastBox, or perhaps one of the niche ones like iGoons, which uh, only plays episodes of The Goon Show, Twitcher, uh, it's just for bird spotters, Bodpeen, which is um, all themed on the 70s children's show Bod. Anyone remember that? Just me, I'm so old. Or Bastcocks, uh, which is to do with deep-fried genitals. Okay, let's leave that one there. Uh, Just please review the show, please. Um, And lastly, if you could just tell other people to listen, that would be the best. This show gains new listeners every week, which is very lovely and much appreciated. But look, I'm going to be needy. I'm going to be needy and whiny. It's my podcast. I can cry if I want to. This show's only ever been somewhere in the 300s in the iTunes chart, and uh, I'd love to be in, I don't know, 200s at least once. I'm not going to set my sights too high. I mean, 200s is where the cool kids are, right? I don't want any of that sell-out high status shit. I don't want to be too popular and they have to make this all wanky. Let's just lurk in the 200s where those big podcasts can maybe just be aware that this show exists and then be a little bit scared about it without knowing that that will never happen. I'll never take their place because it's full of really... Because it's full of really odd rambling admin bits like this that no one really likes. Although, weirdly, uh, I found out today this show is at position number 212 in the Botswana Apple Podcasts. So, um, do melang to all of you out there for that. Um, I hope I haven't said that wrong. I've probably offended you, haven't I? Probably said something really awful. I bet I'm going to find that I'm in position 214 next week. Or worse that there are only 212 podcasts in Botswana overall anyway. Ugh, there is no winning. Anyway... On this week's show, I interviewed Peter Geegan from Open Democracy all about his investigation into the dark money that funds the DUP and the Vote Leave campaign. Um, And it is fascinating. It was really exciting talking to him. Plus, Brexit fallout returns because I know... You were all missing it. I know you were. Don't lie. Why would you lie? Although if you do lie, uh, then you'll probably get to join the Department for Exiting the European Union. And it is quite nice to have career goals, eh? Do you know what I mean? And look, also, there's a new jingle. I don't want to spoil things. New jingle, Little Way Through Podcast. You'll see. You'll enjoy slash probably really hate. But of course, before all of that, here is this goddamn thing. While Theresa May was in the midst of busting moves and regaling the Conservative conference with all the things she hasn't actually achieved, the Court of Appeal made a pretty important announcement that the government broke the law in its treatment of child refugees who were rejected under the Dubs Amendment scheme. Do you remember the Dubs Amendment scheme? You know, created by Lord Dubs, who forever sounds like he could be an amazing grime artist, but he is in fact a Labour peer, who was a child refugee from Czechoslovakia uh, when he arrived in the UK uh, after his country was invaded by the Nazis in World War II. You know, in that time many years ago, before Nazis were too busy on Twitter or just as part of the US government. Well, there is an EU law already called the Dublin 3 regulation that says families have the right to stay together so refugees have a right to join families in another country so they can be, you know, a family. But there are high amounts of unaccompanied children as part of this current refugee crisis and at the time the Dubs Amendment came in there were an awful lot of them in Calais and so Lord Dubs made a scheme so England and Wales could take in unaccompanied children to provide them with shelter and uh, protect them. And while he didn't say exactly how many children the scheme would help, he reckoned it could help a around 3,000. Except the government realised that they were already far too busy ruining lives for British children already and didn't have time to ruin anyone else's, so they put a cap on how many would benefit from coming in, allowing only 480. 480 instead of 3,000. I mean, part of the government's excuse was that it would just encourage young people to make the dangerous journey to the UK. I mean, yeah, sure, that makes sense, of course, because it would be far safer for them just to stand still in their war-torn homes and wait to die. (laughs) Silly kids, what are they thinking? 
But after the Independent discovered that a number of children were let in under the scheme, despite already being covered by the Dublin 3 regulation, as they had family in the UK, the Court of Appeal have decided that, yes, the Home Office just hates kids, and actually their reasons to cap it were, and I quote, patently inadequate. The brilliant charity Help Refugees had brought the appeal uh, to court, arguing that the government hadn't given any of the children refused entry any sort of written deals or explanation as to why, nor was there any review mechanism to challenge decisions, and no way for lone child refugees to access the English or Welsh court schemes. Basically, they did that thing where they realised that unaccompanied kids have really got no one to back them up, so fuck it. I mean, what are they going to do to complain? Blow a raspberry? Ugh, stick it. Essentially, the Home Office were being a villain in a rolled doll book. So now the Court of Appeal have made this decision, what next? Well, hopefully the government can be persuaded to take more children in. But oddly, the only response, I say oddly, probably hugely unsurprisingly, the only response from the Home Office is the typical gaslighting one, which makes it sound like they never capped numbers in the first place. The spokesperson from the Home Office said, This judgment confirms that the government's consultation with local authorities, in which they said they could provide 480 places for eligible children from Europe, was lawful, and we will continue to accept further referrals and transfers ongoing. Uh, so basically, they're saying that they ignored the cap, in which case they broke their own rules and they should be penalised. Or they're saying, hey, ignore all the bad things we did, just look at the one really good thing we did. Or they're saying none of it ever really happened. Or more likely, they're just saying that they don't like saying sorry, despite the fact that apologising is really one of the main British values and they should try to uphold it. The charity Help Refugees are always, always in need of donations. They are a truly brilliant and important bunch of people. Uh, if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know I did uh, a lot of gigs for them last year to uh, help raise money, along with comedian Jen Brister. Um, uh, seriously, they are uh, a fantastic and a group of people I very much trust to put the money in the right places. Um, do check them out at helprefugees.org, at helprefugees on Twitter, or, you know, um, just come to the show. I'm hosting at Backyard Comedy Club on October the 24th. It's called Choose Laughs, uh, and you can get tickets for it on tickettext.co.uk forward slash help refugees forward slash choose laughs and all the money from that gig is going towards help refugees too you know the saying right if life gives you legals you make legal aid Mm-mm, cold glass of legal aid legal aid is one of the things that makes the uk you know um a democratic place that upholds human rights and not completely shit you have a right to legal representation in court even if you can't afford it well done us what good people we be Except journalists at BuzzFeed News have discovered that if you've been taking the government's court with a legal challenge, then you're likely to have had your legal aid refused, which is the sort of suspicious thing that might start a John Grisham novel and then end with someone being kidnapped and Matthew McConaughey mumbling things, but somehow still in a very sexy way. How does he do it? Legal Aid is handled by the Legal Aid Agency, or LA for the musical types among you, uh, which is no one. And they are meant to be independent, but they are also an arm of the many-armed, much like Carly, uh, Ministry of Justice. And it seems as though high-profile cases involving the government often get scrutinised by ministers first and then have their legal aid rejected. Because there's nothing at all odd about the people who are being taken to court looking over the challenge first and thinking, nah, we're not going to give you extra money to fuck us over with, actually. Thanks, bye. BuzzFeed found three cases where this happened. One with a challenge against a ban on prisoners receiving books, uh, which you might remember was brought in by then-Secretary of State for Justice and constant dementor Chris Grayling. And in that case, legal aid was unsurprisingly blocked after a phone call from, guess who? Yes, Chris Grayling. Luckily, the High Court overturned it and the law was changed and now prisoners can read books such as the ones that tell you all about how to beat dementors. 
People being turned down for criminal legal aid because of a subjective interest of justice test has risen from 47% to 67% since La took over. And lawyers and court staff are saying that its judgment is now an awful lot harsher and a lot fewer people are actually receiving legal aid. And all of this points to political interference in the law, which isn't what you want. Well, unless you're Chris Grayling, probably. But the law is meant to be exempt from political influence. It's meant to be, it's meant to be the fucking law. The Ministry of Justice have, of course, denied that that is what's taking place and they say that they've made changes to the Legal Aid Sentencing and Punishment of Offenders Act 2012, or LASPO, in order to make the law more independent and enshrine it in law. But if the law they're enshrining it in can be blocked and interfered with by them anyway, then it's really not much of an enshrining. It's more sort of telling it it finally has its own space, but actually it has to sleep on a futon in the living room. See, what might be a good tactic to stop this really, really awful thing from happening again is maybe to try and make a legal challenge to the Ministry of Justice over their handling of legal aid and apply for legal aid to do it. And maybe just see what happens. If I said the phrase dark money, that could mean a number of things, right? You know, all the way from a new popular rapper's name uh, to a TV series about people who check their wallets at night, or perhaps even just what it's known as when the French Impressionist painter went through a miserable period. But actually, dark money is the term that's used for when non-profit organisations are given funds, but don't disclose where they're from. And currently, in UK politics, dark money is the term that journalist Peter Geegan and Adam Ramsey from Open Democracy are calling the trail of suspicious donations that have funded Northern Ireland's official party of dowdy party poopers, the DUP, and also the Vote Leave campaign during the Brexit referendum. Over the past year, Peter and Adam have been trying to work out why such vast sums of money are untraceable, and just in whose interest it's been to provide such funding. Their investigations so far have pointed to several odd locations, such as Saudi intelligence officials and a group called the Constitutional Research Council, as well as raising lots of questions such as how could human pedal bin Aaron Banks fund vote leave quite so much when he really doesn't have as much money as he says he does in the first place. Not that that's too surprising, really. I mean, Banks always strikes me as the sort of arsehole who'd stand waving a pint around in the pub, boasting about his Rolls Royce outside, and then wobble off to try and quietly leave on a child's tricycle that someone's attached some roadkill to with a bit of string. And all of this so far raises quite a lot of questions about the legitimacy of elections and referendums, all the way to what does it mean for transparency in politics overall, just how effective is the Electoral Commission, and who can I persuade to spit rhymes under the pseudonym of Dark Money, because damn, that is a really good rap name. So this week I spoke to Peter Geegan to ask him all about it. Peter is an Irish investigative journalist based in Scotland who's written for many publications all over the world as well as his own book The People's Referendum Why Scotland Will Never Be the Same Again which he wrote in 2015. Peter very kindly took time out of his stupidly busy schedule to tell me how the investigation began, what they've been finding out and just what it all means for the future of politics. Here is Peter. So what made uh, you uh, and Adam Ramsey, uh, who you work with at Open Democracy, what made you both realise that something wasn't right about the funding of the Leave campaign and the DUP in the first place? I became interested, I guess, in the funding of the DUP's Brexit campaign a few days actually before the referendum back in June 2016. I was covering the campaign for the Irish Times. I was working mainly in Scotland, but also in the north of England. And I was in Sunderland, and I was sitting on the, the train, the suburban train, and I picked up a copy of the Metro Free Sheet. And I had a big, huge four-page wraparound ad, you know, vote, leave, take back control. I was looking at the ad, and I was looking at the back page as I flipped it over, and you could see the 
the logo of the DUP and said, you know, sponsored by the Democratic Unionist Party. And I thought this was interesting because, you know, DUP are a party I've known for quite a few years. I, I've worked in Northern Irish politics in the past, reporting on Northern Irish politics. So I was quite struck with why is the DUP advertising in such an ostentatious fashion in Sunderland? It's a long way uh, from the glens of Antrim. You know, what's going on? And a bit of me was wondering, well, how can they afford such a huge big ad? Um, and then Adam Ramsey, who at the time I was just a friend of mine, really got in touch with me a few months later asking about the DUP and Brexit. He said he'd been quite interested because he'd noticed something something else. A few days before the, the Brexit vote, he was in Edinburgh where he lives and he was walking around the centre of the town and he noticed there was people out with vote leave uh, campaign banners and, and placards and he was talking to them. And while he's speaking to me, he noticed that their placards had written on the bottom of them an imprint that said... Uh, uh, funded by um, the Democratic Unionist Party with an address in Belfast. So he was quite interested in what was what were DUP placards doing in Edinburgh. So the two of us started talking about uh, about well these different aspects of DUP's funding campaign. And one of the and one of the things that also kind of struck my interest was that um, by this stage, the Electoral Commission for under the Electoral Commission rules campaign finances of under a quarter million pounds are declared first and then over a quarter million pounds a few months later basically because if you got more funding if you spent more money they give you a bit longer to put it all together and by the time we were starting to speak to each other the DUPs uh, the electoral commission had already published their small funding under a quarter million pounds and the DUP wasn't in it so that meant that the DUP had spent more than a quarter million pounds on their Brexit campaign which is a huge amount of money uh, for an ordinary political party so it was it was kind of a confluence of these different things that started us asking questions about well what was going on here and where did the DUP get so much money to fund a campaign and why were they campaigning seemingly so much in Great Britain and not in Northern Ireland. Yeah because I mean that is really bizarre for, for a political uh, group that only really uh, runs for election ever in, in, in Northern Ireland. Why on earth would you be campaigning in Sunderland? That's bizarre. And, and I mean, your investigation, uh, I've, I've been following it quite a lot over the past year and, and a half. You, it's led you down some quite interesting routes uh, and some quite interesting connections. What have you, um, and I realise this is a very big question to ask, but what have you been able to find out so far? Or has it mainly just been raising even more questions about sort of non-transparent funds in the political domain? Well, that's that's true. Eighteen months ago, if you would have told me I, after I filed our, my first story on the DUP's Brexit funding, if you told me eighteen months later I'd still be talking about it and other things, I wouldn't have believed you. I would have thought you were totally crazy. I thought it was one of those things that would just be one story or a couple of stories, and then you'd move on. But really, it's opened up a kind of huge strand of investigation, which we've called dark money, but which broadly looks at at political financing and political campaigning, and probably has looked quite a lot at, at Brexit in particular. And there's been a couple of different strands to it. Really. One has been the DUP and DUP's funding. Uh, we still don't know who the funder of the DUP was because this, this money was um, was donated uh, at a time when Northern Ireland still had donor, transparent, uh, donor secrecy laws, which basically meant the people who gave money to political campaigns in Northern Ireland uh, were not revealed. Uh, it was the exact same kind of regime as in the rest of the UK. Political parties had to submit their spending and everything else to the electoral commission. They had to abide by the exact same rules. They had to know where the money came from. But the only difference was in Northern Ireland, information about the political donors themselves wasn't made publish, public. That's that's the reason we don't know who this group called the Constitutional Research Council, who the DUP have said gave them their money. We don't know anything about them because the electoral commission can't publish any of their details because they're a political donor in Northern Ireland. And actually, if somebody from the electoral commission was to give information away that was could reveal who the donor was they could face up to six months in prison so we still don't know who the donor to the dp is but we have done 
probably dozens of stories looking at various aspects of this. You know, we've, we've established more questions about the DUP donation. We've established very serious questions about whether the DUP knows who exactly is behind the Constitutional Research Council. Basically, who does the DUP know who gave them the money? And this seems to be quite unclear if the DUP does actually know. And if they don't know, then they are breaking electoral law. We've also discovered that the, the Constitutional Research Council, the people who gave the DUP this money, were funded by, uh, fined by the Electoral Commission for not providing paperwork before the Brexit vote. We've raised more questions about other aspects of, of, of the DUPs, this specific donation to the DUP. And we've also, I think, been instrumental in changing donor secrecy laws in Northern Ireland. So no longer in Northern Ireland is there donor secrecy. Uh, that was changed um, in 2017. So now political donations in Northern Ireland have to be revealed. And I think it's fair to say our work and work of other journalists is really important in that. But with a caveat that the government, the UK government, which obviously relies on DUP for votes, decided not to backdate this to 2014, which they could easily have done. They could have uh, this legislation already existed. They could have backdated 2014. The Electoral Commission of Northern Ireland asked them to backdate 2014 so they could publish all the documentation that they had on political donations. But the British government said no. They were only going to bring in donor transparency from uh, June of 2017 on, which meant we didn't know who's the DUP's Brexit funder. So you've got the DUP as one kind of aspect of this. But we also did a lot of work looking at the official vote leave campaign and particularly a young man named Darren Grimes, who maybe some of your listeners have now heard of. But we started publishing stories about Darren Grimes about a year ago. Um, we did a lot of FOIing around that and his interaction with the Electoral Commission. And we discovered that the Electoral Commission had internally said that Darren Grimes is... Uh, who Darren Grimes basically was this at the time he was a fashion student um, and he'd ran a small campaign called Believe, a pro-Brexit, a young pro-Brexit campaign. And in about three months, Believe raised about £100 uh, for their campaign, did some social media work. But in the last few days of the referendum, uh, Believe spent £675,000. And this was money, almost all this money was given to believe by the official vote leave campaign because the official vote leave campaign could only spend up to seven million pounds and was running out of uh, was running out of money that it could spend so it kind of almost needed to, to give the money to other people but you're not allowed to work together campaigns aren't allowed to work together um in a referendum or in british politics it's against electoral law and if they do work together they have to they have to jointly declare their their funding or their their Spending, which basically means if you vote leave and you've spent seven million pounds, you can't just create new groups and give them money uh, to, to kind of to override the spending. But that's kind of what happened in this case that we, we discovered that Darren Grimes, not only did Darren Grimes, uh, was Darren Grimes given this huge amount of money, this 675,000 pounds, he actually didn't direct how it was spent and the money was never even given to him. Vote leave spent this money with a small um, data analytics company called Aggregate IQ and they spent this money. Uh, on behalf of Darren Grimes, but Darren Grimes never saw the money. So we were able to establish that this had happened, but also the Extra Commission had seen this and then had talked to each other internally saying how unusual it was, but decided not to open a full investigation. And the wake of that story, uh, the Good Law Project and Julian Mom opened a, a judicial review against the Extra Commission, um, and the Extra Commission themselves decided to reopen their investigation to Darren Grimes. Darren Grimes subsequently, subsequently fined £20,000 by the Extra Commission, and Vote Leave were also fined £20,000 as well. So we looked at Vote Leave, um, that was part of our work. And the, probably the third prong of our work was da uh, a man called Aaron Banks and Leave.eu. And Aaron Banks uh, is kind of known as the biggest Brexit funder. He spent millions and millions of pounds on the Brexit campaign through his cam and his campaign called Leave.eu. And a series of questions have now kind of come into the public domain about Aaron Banks in the last few months. 
especially concerns about his links with Russia. But I think it's fair to say we were kind of working on this stuff about a year ago or even more. We published a, ser a, long, a series of long articles looking at Aaron Banks' finances, raising serious questions about Aaron Banks' finances, you know, his insurance companies, uh, issues around solvencies, insurance companies, and questions about how somebody whose businesses, you know, seemed to be worth less than he said they were, was able to spend so much money on the Brexit campaign. And we did a series, um, I've done a lot of work looking at various aspects of, of Aaron Banks' businesses. We also revealed his uh, his diamond mines in Lesotho, which he said he's going to use uh, to, to fund a, a second new UKIP-style party with Nigel Farage at its head, and we revealed that actually these diamond mines had not produced any diamonds, and he said that he was he was being paid to give political advice to a local political party in Lesotho, and we were able to reveal that actually he was receiving he was giving money to the political party in Lesotho rather than the other way around. So we were, I think we we ended up from one small story kind of spiraling out to, to to see actually kind of a broader pattern of questions about. Uh, how the Brexit vote had been regulated and how some of this money had been spent. It's amazing some of the results that you've got out of that and that you've been able to find out over the past three years. But it does raise so quite a lot of questions because you mentioned uh, with with Darren Grimes, obviously there's the connections to the aggregate IQ, which were part of the or part of the same group as Cambridge Analytica, and and then there's all the connections that that's been revealed with with that to Trump's campaign. Are you sort of feeling that this is uncovering something bigger about the election motives of the Leave campaign or the DUP? Do do you you know I know that sort of in the 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 hope of Remainers that that this could maybe delegitimize the referendum but do you think that this this leads to something darker or more suspicious or is it just kind of fiddling uh, accounts what's what's your view on it so far i think the big issue is that we don't know and i think that's a big challenge is that we don't because we don't know because we haven't had a, a thorough investigation we've had a series of kind of piecemeal investigations so the electoral commission have had some small investigations Journalists like myself and Carol Cardwallader and others have been, you know, have been burrowing around this and finding new information. We had the fake news inquiry through the DCMS committee at the House of Parliament, which was led by Damien Collins. They issued a report, but we've not had anything exhaustive and we've not had anything that involved the police or other official bodies like the National Crime Agency. So in the absence of that, it's very hard to say. I think because we don't we don't really have concrete information, concrete, uh, you know, about the whole scope of this, it, it means that... I think it, it, uh, it, it's left a lot of questions. I think that's a big problem at the moment for British democracy. You know, people like myself and others have been able, have been revealing kind of concerns about aspects of this vote, but we've not seen a kind of comprehensive attempt to get to the bottom of what's happening. It's hard not to look across the, the water to America where you've got the Mueller investigation going on and really like burrowing down into specific, specific meetings. What was discussed? Who was there? You're really, really going, really burrowing into it. We're not seeing anything similar like that happening in the United Kingdom. And I think that's, I think that's a much bigger concern it's almost impossible to say for certain what what's happened without a fully fledged inquiry. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we'll be back with Peter in a minute, but first, I know you're excited because, yes... It is back. Okay, so uh, there is some movement in Brexit negotiations. Yes, I know. How exciting. What sort of movement, you ask? Oh, uh, well, you know that robot dance that May did before her speech that made everyone feel a bit sad, but also a little bit ill and uncomfortable at the same time? kind of that sort of movement in that you know something is definitely moving but it's very hard to tell in which direction and it's very hard to feel happy about it instead of just a bit disgruntled and concerned but may has said that she is ready to propose a grand bargain which is possibly an upcoming film by wes anderson but is also mainly a concession meaning the uk would stay tied to the customs union rules on goods and probably bads and mediums after we leave in 2020 Obviously, we'll have left the customs union, only we sort of also won't have left the customs union. And strangely, that hasn't upset and confused everyone, just a lot of people. President of the European Commission and what if Morecambe and Wise had had a love child, Jean-Claude Juncker, and President of the European Council and time bandit, Donald Tusk, have both said that chances of a deal have increased and that there's likely to be an agreement between the UK and the EU by the end of the year. Hooray! Although you could also read those statements as them saying we've gone from minus chance now to zero chance and that maybe Santa will bring an agreement on Christmas as they don't trust the British government to remotely handle it. May's plan, though, uh, which is currently quite vague, apart from the title of a grand bargain, uh, which sounds like the sort of thing you'd have as a kind of pound shop guru, would allow for a backstop to the Irish border issue, because still, absolutely no one has any valid ideas about what to do with that, other than tell everyone else that all their ideas are shit. I mean, that's what Conservative Brexiteers excel at, and they're currently demanding May's plan state that the grand bargain lasts until 2022 at the very latest, uh, by which point I guess they'll maybe have worked out which other plans they hate the most while still refusing to go along with any others. Which could be an idea in itself, I guess. I mean, where instead of a physical border in Ireland, you could have some sort of negative border with just people standing around telling you everything you're transporting sounds awful and is probably disgusting, and if you have the mental will to deal with that, you can carry on. Ugh, I'm a goddamn genius. The DUP have said that they don't want any checks at any sort of border, and DUP leader and Paul Merton character Arlene Foster said her lines were blood red on the issue, which I'd suggest is also not a great idea for a border, and would probably, in Northern Ireland, cause even more problems than fixing them. So, May's plan, if it were to include a backstop, which, uh, as a reminder, would be put in place to ensure a physical border wouldn't happen due to Northern Ireland basically staying in the customs union if no solution was found, May's plan, if that all happened, would help, even though the DUP don't want that either. Even though, as well, Sinn Féin and the SDLP have rejected the idea of the members of the Northern Irish Assembly having any role in deciding what kind of backstop there will be, which I suppose makes sense considering the MLA can't even work out among themselves uh, how to have any sort of assembly at the moment anyway. But... All of this is only if the EU agreed to May's grand bargain, which sounds like some sort of BBC daytime TV show. 
even though it currently has no precise framework on how post-Brexit relations would work, which is the sort of thing that you think you might need for a plan on how post-Brexit relations would work. So right now you have a new plan from May that she's fighting with her own party to work out, which she then has to get past the EU, and after all that, Northern Ireland have to argue amongst themselves about how best not to do it. So, you know, things are looking at least slightly more hopeful than when May had a plan that everyone said they didn't want, and then they didn't want it, and then nothing happened. It's all a matter of perspective, see what I mean? There's, there's a way There's a way to, uh, way to be positive. And now the SNP are backing a people's vote. And with 35 members of parliament in their party, that is the largest party so far to back a second referendum officially, uh, as well as obviously the Lib Dems, the Greens, and the vague possibility that Labour may agree to a people's vote depending on what happens elsewhere. And hey, is there a way to bet so whoever loses, we win something? Still, no one's explained how they'd have time to fit in a second referendum before the end of March next year, but when everyone else is fantasising about imaginary bridges to Ireland or that the EU can't use the internet, then why not just say that could happen, eh? What have you got to lose? On the plus side, two sort of good news things have happened that point to maybe the UK not completely self-destructing after Brexit. Um, In the way that this sort of movement with Brexit negotiations is sort of good in comparison, you know, to absolutely nothing happening. The first sort of good thing is that Unilever, who make all of the things like Marmite and Purcell and Cornettos and Domestos and PG Tips, uh, you know, basically lunch, if you like to mix in your yeast extract with a little bit of washing powder, mm-hmm. they have decided not to move their headquarters from London to Rotterdam. And not just because of that beautiful South track that says it could be Rotterdam or anywhere, uh, but mainly because of British shareholders not wanting them to. Now, Unilever have said their move wasn't going to be to do with Brexit in the first place, but it almost definitely was. But them moving also would have done stuff with stock that made them all rubbish that I don't really understand but people with money do and they got really sad and hey now they're staying and even though they said it wouldn't affect jobs it definitely would have done but it now definitely hasn't and even though they said it wasn't doing Brexit it probably was and now you can say it's a good or a bad thing or a nothing thing depending on whether you like or hate Marmite or Brexit who share only that quality and pretty much nothing else as things. The other sort of good thing is that Japan have said the UK could join the Trans-Pacific Partnership after it leaves the EU. And the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, uh, is a trade agreement between 11 countries, including Japan, OVS, otherwise it'd be weird if they just said, hey, you can join this, we've got nothing to do with it, that'd be a bit sneaky, Japan, uh, Canada, Australia, and then other ones. So that's sort of good, because that is a hell of a lot of trade, you know what I mean? But it's also not good, because the TPP, much like the TTIP, that people voted for Brexit to oppose, favours business over workers and allows things like companies to sue governments if they have health policies that don't allow their product to be sold or other things like that. It's exactly the sort of dodgy deal that Brexiteers like disgraced MP Lee and the disgraced Fox of Disgrace have been banging on about getting while also talking about increased sovereignty. So while his face is probably lit up right now like a gerbil getting wanked off, he's also actively happy about the UK having less sovereignty as will be beholden to even bigger countries and companies as well. Yeah, take that democratically elected EU, we want freedom from you so we can get fucked over by cigarette companies who are angry children can't smoke in nurseries, thus depriving them of an original jazz atmosphere. Also, the TTP got royally fucked over by the US when Donald Trump refused to join. In one of those weird moments where Donald Trump almost did something decent, hey, stop clocks and all that, stopped cocks, and I suppose he does have a big face and tiny hands. Anyway, This means that the US is not part of it, and while the UK will probably still be able to have a trade deal with the US, if they are part of the TTP and Trump is still being a maniac, there's every chance that he'll change that with a tweet at 4am in the morning while having a shit, and then we can no longer trade with them. Oh, and as for the aforementioned Liam Fox, uh, here is a new section just for you. 
Need a section that was just for whatever shit has been spouted from Fox's mouth hole and has squelched landed into the world this week. Because let's face it, the twice disgraced MP has been a hole of contradictions mixed with a pot of stupidities as he's been bundling around the world meeting dictators and getting all squealy about chickens that taste like a public swimming pool after a reception class has been in it. So, uh, for the first one, this week, Fox has said that he would back a less than perfect Brexit deal as it can be revised and improved after the UK leaves. Now, aside from how desperate this makes him look, you know, a bit like the gullible kid at school who'd race to walk around with his pants down around the playground if it meant he could get a kiss from the pretty girl in his class, despite not realising that definitely wouldn't happen and he would forever be called shitty pants Liam for the rest of his life. Despite that, if we make a deal that's not great, who knows how long it'll be before you can revise it. I mean, that not great deal could plunge the UK into a recession or who knows what and force us to sign up to all sorts of inadequate trading stances with this country suffering for absolute years in the aftermath until something new is sorted. You can't just faff about with it in the hope that you can redo it later. I mean, it's a bit like a surgeon telling a heart surgery patient not to worry if they fuck it up a bit as they'll sort out the odds and sods once they've sewn him up with a knitting needle and shoelace. Good luck, mate. How on earth do you still have a job? Disgraced MP, Liam the Disgraced Fox, the Disgrace. And now, back to Peter. And I suppose that's particularly terrifying, considering it's, it's to do with, for example, the referendum, which had such political consequences and will have social consequences for many years to come. But we don't quite know who's been funding a lot of the campaigns towards it. Exactly. And I think that's, that, yeah, and I think there's, there's that aspect of it. And there's also the kind of the wider question as well of, the, the unwillingness um, from, from many, especially in officialdom, to, to actually ask that question or to want to ask that question. You know, people like myself and others, you know, were kind of accused of having some kind of partisan axe to grind, have been owners or something, rather than being journalists who are trying to figure out exactly what was happening. And I think the, the failure to do that and the failure to want to talk about what actually happened, it's, but it's a bad sign, not just about the referendum itself, but future, you know, this isn't just about the Brexit vote. This is, you know, this is how our politics is regulated and how our politics functions. And I think, you know, it, beg, it, it raises serious issues and concerns about what could happen into the future. But I mean, it's it's also it's not just these sort of campaigns because you know one of the things that I keep realizing is there's a real lack of transparency overall in political funding. Often in some of, uh, I know you said that they have to kind of declare donors over a certain amount, but uh, often there's a lot of Conservative Party donors that are business led, and we we don't quite know what effect that has on their policies. There's the Taxpayers Alliance and think tanks like that that won't declare who funds them. Do you think that's a kind of a larger problem overall? Yes, I think it is. I think it's a huge problem. I think that's a that's a bigger. This is the bigger. This is a much bigger problem. The much bigger problem is how you know how easy it is to access and distort and influence the British political process. You know, the DUP's money and some of the aspects around Aaron Banks and stuff is is a very obvious sense of oh actually this looks this is money that we don't know where it's coming from and it's kind of looking crooked and what's going on. But in your day, in but actually what I think is almost more influential is how money shapes and um, money is used to shape ideas. Money from unknown sources to shape. So what you're seeing, you know, you're not really going to see the Conservative Party being given 
hundreds of thousands of pounds in a black brown envelope and I, you know maybe you will but i think that's unlikely that's not really how politics works but what you do see is like think tanks like the institute of economic affairs you know the think tanks who are who are funded who are not transparent about their funding and the work that they do then directly influences conservative policy in, in that instance you know they're very pro-tax haven anti-regulation want to privatize the nhs and what you've got now is political parties in the UK and, and elsewhere, you know, they're quite, they're much smaller organisations than they used to be. They've got very little policy making capacity. They often outsource their ideas to the wider world. And if you're someone who wants to influence the political process, you know, a couple of million pounds can go a long way in terms of hiring some of these think tank people to produce a couple of thin reports and then be the people who go on television to talk about these things and to create this idea that, you know, there's, this is the this is a, a, a kind of viable alternative, and that can easily feed its way into the political process, into political parties. And I think that if you look at how how that whole system of influence works, one level is kind of money from unknown sources, but actually a much more pernicious, and I would argue widespread um, way in which that kind of money infiltrates political process isn't through the funding of political parties. It's the funding of things like think tanks and policy making organisations that then create these policies that look. You know, they look like they're legitimate. They've, they've come. They're not paid for. They look like they're kind of legitimate, but actually they are paid for. And that then threads into the political process. And is there also something because it was, you mentioned earlier about the Good Law Project uh, winning the case in the High Court um, about the uh, Vote Leave campaign uh, donations? And uh, is I mean, the Electoral Commission out of date? Do they need kind of changing and updating because they got the? Am I correct in thinking they got the the law wrong with Vote Leave spending and they advised that they could spend more but didn't advise uh, the Remain campaign? I think is, is that the right way around? <laughs> Yes, that's basically, they, they, Joan Liu Mom's case has found that the, the Electoral Commission basically misunderstood the law. And I think it's it's been quite concerning. I'm, I'm, I'm very much in favour of regulation, but I think, you know, the behaviour of the Electoral Commission does need to be, does need to be looked at. You know, just last week I published another story about the Democratic Unionist Party um, and the Electoral Commission, look, looking at emails that, that the Electoral Commission, internal emails from the Electoral Commission that were sent after a very, very strong BBC Northern Ireland Spotlight documentary back in um, back in June, July, July actually, that raised more questions about the DUP vote. And what you could see from these emails, the Electoral Commission talking amongst themselves, going, this is really concerning, and then not investigating saying that it's up to the BBC to provide evidence, we don't have to do anything. But actually, the Electoral Commission's job is to investigate. It's not up to the journalists to do the Electoral Commission's job for it. And we saw the exact same thing with Darren Grimes. We proved this at Open Democracy. But the Electoral Commission internally are saying the spending is very unusual, it's very strange, but we're not going to investigate. And it's only when outside pressure came on board that they investigated and they end up levying record fines. Um, and I think that's very worrying, the, the, the unwillingness of the regulator to get involved, to actually do its job, to go and investigate things, to go and find out what's happening. And that makes me we're kind of quite concerned about the, how, how fit for purpose the, the regulator is uh, to deal with this, uh, with these challenges, to deal with this kind of new electoral uh, kind of this new age in politics. I think that's that's very concerning. And the willingness to just, you know, we're outsourced. A lot of our election now to tech, to tech companies. So it's tech companies who are saying, oh, we'll put the imprint of whoever's paying for political ads on it. But that shouldn't be up to tech companies. It shouldn't be up to Facebook and, and Twitter and Google to decide who regulates democracy. It should be something that, you know, that the, the state decides and, and then pushes out upon the companies that operate within its borders rather than the other way around. And I think what you're seeing from the actual commission across the piece has been a real surprising level of timidity um, and and again what you saw so joe mom's case that they won the high court the electoral commission have announced that they're going to challenge that verdict 
which I think, again, is a very strange spent, uh, approach to public money. You know, this is, the Electoral Commission are going to use its public funds to challenge a High Court ruling that went against it, rather than asking difficult questions about, well, how did we end up giving, how do we end up misreading the legislation in the first place? And are we doing that in other, in other instances? That's a really, I didn't know about that. That's a really bizarre stance to take. And I think that surely is going to sort of lose them even more uh, faith from, from the public. If, if the regulators not believing in, you know, not going with the verdict of the High Court, that seems really, that's really odd. I didn't know that at all. Yeah, I think it's a very, very curious decision. I don't, I don't quite understand what they're hoping to gain from it, um, rather, than, rather than actually holding their hands up and saying, well, what, what, what went wrong in this case? How do we, you know, how do we address it? They, they seem to be to go be going the other way around it and I think it's quite a dangerous precedent they're trying to set I mean is, is part of it I mean I, I don't know sort of how well the Electoral Commission is funded or, or I don't really know a lot about it or where it, or who it's funded by but is part of it and, and similarly with the, with the journalism in this case because I know you had to crowdfund to do this investigation is there an issue that there's just not a lot of funds behind properly looking into all of this stuff I think that's part of it too I think there's there's both a political unwillingness to deal with this because it kind of becomes it quite quickly descends into will the people stop this kind of like kind of slightly dead end conversation, but also there's there is definitely you know at, across the piece you see this not just with electoral regulation but everything from HMRC from tax returns to you know the Charity Commission you see this across the piece um, you see a kind of un, um, a, um, a kind of a, a funding been taken away from these regula- regulatory bodies and also just a concern because they, they are arms length from government but they, they you know their funding comes from government so it is in their interests. You know, to, to not to rock the boat too much, and I think that's part of what we're seeing in the regulation environment. You know, and this is the same environment we saw, say, with the, in the, with financial uh, regulation, the run-up to financial crisis, and arguably since. I was going to ask just a, a last question, uh, which is something that I ask all of the guests. Um, uh, apart from uh, yourself and Adam at Open Democracy, which is obviously where all the listeners should go to to follow this uh, case, I assume you've, you've got more. Have you got more of the investigation coming, or is this? Yeah, we're still working on this story. Yeah, no, we, we we publish frequently. We had a new story out last week. We probably have a few more stories this week. So no, we, this is we we've been publishing kind of consistently on this area over the last eighteen months, and I'm probably will continue to do so. I think we've we've got some other larger investigations coming down the track as well. So it's an exciting time for Open Dockery's investigations outlet, of which I'm I'm lucky enough to be to be kind of sitting at the top of. And we I think it's been uh, it's been really eye opening for for us and for me to see how from one small story, how much more cascades out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I was going to ask, apart from yourselves, obviously, who, who listeners should definitely follow and read up on, um, who else would you recommend that people follow, uh, you know, on this story of dark money or just on the issue of kind of political transparency overall? I know you mentioned Carol Cadwallader uh, earlier. Is there anyone else as well that you... You, there's people, lots of people doing great work you know obviously i'd recommend following on, on twitter and other mediums you know my colleague adam ramsey and, and jenna cordroy who works for me too you know carol cardwaller of the guardian the guardian's investigation team david pegg and rob evans have started doing work in this space as well it's been really good bloomberg have done some fantastic uh, investigations into um you know kind of aspects of the brexit referendum vote itself and on the night of the vote so there's been some really good journalism being starting to be done around it. i think you know i think for a lot of people there were a lot of journalists might have thought that really the Brexit vote's over. Um, and I was surprised when we started off working in this area how little work was being done. But that's definitely changed in the last few months as more people have come, have come on board and have started doing work in the space. 
Thank you to Peter for having time to give me an overview of his and Adam's investigation. Uh, you can go back through all of their articles following the dark money at opendemocracy.net, uh, which you can also find on Twitter at opendemocracy. Peter is on Twitter at, uh, and I'm going to spell this out for you, Peter K G E O G H E G A N, and his own website is petergeegan.com as well. Um, Adam Ramsey, who has mentioned lots and was on the podcast way back when in the early days talking about Scottish politics, um, he's also on Twitter at Adam Ramsey, that's R A M S A Y, and all the other links Peter mentions will be on the partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk website soonish. Thank you to Cat Day and her linear note writing expertise. Um, and a big thank you this week to Emily for asking if I could interview Peter and emailing me to uh, do so. Um, do you see, if you recommend I get in contact with people, sometimes I will actually listen to you. Um, or more importantly, sometimes those people actually reply and agree. Uh, I do nearly always listen to you. They don't always want to talk. Um, but still, do send over anyone you'd like me to get on this show or subjects you'd like me to chat to people about, and I will try my gold darn best to do so. Uh, you can, of course, get in touch via at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at Partly Political Broadcast or just email at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or, you know, you could carve it on a tree sap and then in years and years' time when that sap has become a huge oak or a giant sycamore, many will be able to read your message embedded in nature and then relay it to me through the art of spoken word. Um, except, of course, it takes 20, 30 years for those trees to grow properly and chances are climate change will kick in in 12, so it'll have melted by then. I mean, it's probably, probably just better to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you once again for choosing to give up an hour of your life to this podcast, despite knowing you'll never, ever get it back. And please don't forget to give this show a review on iTunes, Stitcher, CastBox, Podbean, or even just on Yelp and see how many people try to use this show to fix their boiler as a result. If you can, please donate to the Patreon or Ko-fi pages. Check out the website partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk for extra stuff. And mostly, please just spread the word about this show to other people who might just like but haven't tried it yet. Thank you to Acast for clasping this show into their audio bosom and to my brother the Last Skeptic for all of the music. This will be back next week when May turns up to Brussels with no plan but tries to get the best Brexit deal for the UK by doing Gangnam Style for six and a half minutes until she's forcibly removed and everyone that witnesses it sues the UK for their therapy bills. Bye! This week's show is brought to you by Michael Gove's Top Tip Tips. Do you keep finding only rubbish rubbish? Well, buy Michael Gove's Top Tip Tips and his guide will make sure you only pick out the proper bits of sweet corn in amongst all the turds. Includes how to find that rubber appendage you've always desired but couldn't afford and best knife to fight a rat with. Michael Gove's Top Tip Tips. Once you've bought a copy, you'll be able to find another one in the dump within minutes. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.